and welcome to A History of Alexander the Great. Episode 21. Mutiny on the Bounty. Full City of Opis. Two weeks ago, we entered the endgame of Alexander the Great's life. And this week, we shall cover one of the last major events of Alexander's life. The Mutiny at Opis. So, as we enter the spring of 324 BC, Alexander's reign of terror was ending. He paid off the debts of his troops. How nice. But this did not halt the rage that was building up inside them. You see, they had refused to march into India for many reasons. Mostly that they didn't want to go on what seemed like a suicide mission. This next revolt was based on something Alexander did his growing Orientalism. We had discussed this while Alexander was crossing Central Asia. Clanitus did not like Alexander's Persian habits, and Alexander in turn killed him. While the troops were generally content to let Alexander do what he did, their opinions had changed since then. Alexander had continued becoming more and more Oriental, and now wore Median clothes. He heavily approved that the governor of Persia had adopted the Persian dress and language. Alexander had incorporated Asiatic troops into his army, and had trained 30,000 young Asians in Macedonian warfare. He called them his inheritors. This was a way of reducing his dependence on Macedonian manpower to fight his wars. Alexander had recently taken a second wife, Barsane, also called Statira, who was the daughter of Darius. At the same time as this wedding, he married a great number of his officers to Persian wives, including Hephaestion. These officers complied, but that did not mean they approved. So Alexander made his way from Susa, where the weddings had taken place, up the Tigris to Opis. As we did with the first mutiny, I shall quote Arian to give you the best idea of what was going on, and to help you understand how, while they may have been furious with him, Alexander's troops still loved him. At Opis, he summoned an assembly of his Macedonian troops and announced the discharge from the army of all men unfit, through age or disablement, for further service. These he proposed to send home, and promised to give them, on their departure, enough to make their friends and relatives envy them, and to fire their countrymen with eagerness to play a part in similar perilous adventures in the future. Doubtless, he meant to gratify them by what he said. Unfortunately, however, the men already felt that he had come to undervalue their services, and to think them quite useless as a fighting force. So, naturally enough, they resented his remarks as merely another instance of the many things which, throughout the campaign, he had done to hurt their feelings, such as his adoption of Persian dress, the issue of Macedonian equipment to the Oriental Epiongai, and the inclusion of foreign troops in the units of the companions. The result was that they did not receive the speech in respectful silence, but, 
unable to restrain themselves, called for the discharge of every man in the army, adding, in bitter jest, that on his next campaign he could take his father with him, meaning, presumably, the god Amon. Alexander was furious. He had grown by that time quicker to take offence, and the oriental subservience, to which he had become accustomed, had greatly changed his old open-hearted manner towards his own countrymen. He leapt from the platform with the officers who attended him, and pointed with his finger to the ringleaders of the mutiny, ordered the guards to arrest them. There were thirteen of them, and they were all marched off to execution. A horrified silence ensued, and Alexander stepped up once again onto the rostrum, and addressed his troops in these words. My countrymen, you are sick for home. So be it. I shall make no attempt to check your longing to return. Go, whether you will. I shall not hinder you. But, if you must go, there is one thing I would have you understand. What I have done for you, and in what coin you will have repaid me. First, I will speak of my father Philip, as it is my duty to do so. Philip found you a tribe of impoverished vagabonds, most of you dressed in skins, feeding a few sheep on the hills and fighting, feebly enough, to keep them from your neighbours, Thracians and Treblanians and Illyrians. He gave you cloaks to wear instead of skins. He brought you down from the hills into the plains. He taught you to fight on equal terms with the enemy on your borders, till you knew that your safety lay not, as once, in your mountain strongholds, but in your own valour. He made you city-dwellers. He brought you law. He civilised you. He rescued you from subjection and slavery, and made you masters of the wild tribes who harried and plundered you. He annexed the greater part of Thrace, and by seizing the best places on the coast, opened your country to trade, and enabled you to work your mines without fear of attack. Thessaly, so long your bugbear and your dread, he subjected to your rule, and by humbling the Phocaeans, he made your narrow and difficult path into Greece a broad and easy road. The men of Athens and Thebes, who for years had kept watching for their moment to strike us down, he brought so low, and by this time I myself was working at my father's side, that they who were once extracted from us, either our money or our obedience, now, in their turn, look to us as the means of their salvation. Passing into the Peloponnese, he settled everything there to his satisfaction, and when he was made supreme commander of all the rest of Greece for the war against Persia, he claimed glory of it not for himself alone, but for the Macedonian people. These services which my father rendered you are indeed intrinsically great, yet they are small in comparison with my own. I inherited from him a handful of gold and silver cups, coin in the treasury worth less than sixty talents, and over eight times that amount of debts incurred by him. Yet, to add to this burden, I borrowed a further sum of eight hundred talents, and marching out from a country too poor to maintain you decently, laid open for you at a blow, and in spite of Persia's naval supremacy, the gates of the Hellespont. My cavalry crushed the satraps of Darius. I added all of Ionia and Aeolia, the two fridges, and Lydia to your empire. My Telus I reduced by siege. The other towns all yielded of their own free will, 
I took them and gave them you for your profits and enjoyments, the wealth of Egypt and Cyrene, which I shed no blood to win, now flows into your hands. Palestine and the plains of Syria and the land between the rivers are now your property. Babylon and Bactria and Susa are yours. You are the masters of the gold of Lydia, the treasures of Persia, the wealth of India. Yes, and the seas beyond India too. You are my captains, my generals, my governors of provinces. From all this which I have laboured to win for you, what is left for myself except the purple and this crown? I keep nothing for my own. No one can point to treasure of mine apart from all which you yourselves either possess or have in safe keeping for your future use. Indeed, what reasons have I to keep anything as I eat the same food and take the same sleep as you? Ah, but there are epicures among you who, I fancy, eat more luxuriously than I. And this I know, that I wake earlier than you, and watch that you may sleep. Perhaps you will say that, in my position as your commander, I had none of the labours and distresses which you had to endure to win for me what I have won. But does any man among you honestly feel that he has suffered more for me than I have suffered for him? Come now, if you are wounded, strip and show your wounds, and I will show you mine. There is no part of my body but my back which has not a scar. Not a weapon a man may grasp or fling the mark of which I do not carry upon me. I have sword cuts from close fights, arrows have pierced me. Missiles from catapults bruised my flesh. Again and again I have been struck by stones or clubs. And all for your sakes, for your glory and your gain. Over every land and sea, across river, mountain and plain, I have led you to the world's end, a victorious army. I married as you married, and many of you will have children related by blood to my own. Some of you have owed money, and I have paid your debts, never troubling to inquire how they were incurred, and in spite of the fact that you earn good pay and grow rich from the sack of cities. To most of you, I have given a circle of gold as a memorial for ever and ever of your courage and of my regard. And what of those who have died in battle? Their death was noble, their burial illustrious. Almost all are commemorated at home by statues of bronze. Their parents are held in honour, with all dues of money or service remitted. For under my leadership, not a man among you has ever fallen with his back to the enemy. And now, and now, it was in my mind to dismiss any man who no longer fit for active service. All such should return home and be envied and admired. But you all wish to leave me? Go then. And when you reach home, tell them that Alexander, your king, who vanquished Persians, Amedes and Bactrians and Sakai, who crushed the Uxi, the Atricoans, the Drankai, and added the empire of Parthia, the Chromazian waste, and Hycernia to the Caspian Sea, who crossed the Caucasus beyond the Caspian Gates, and Oxus, and Tanius and the Indus, which none of but Dionysus have crossed before him, and the Hydaspes, and the Aesines, and the Hydrotes, yes, and the Hydaspes too. Had you not feared to follow, 
who by both mouths of the Indus burst into the great sea beyond, and traversed the desert of Gedrosia, untrodden before by any army, who made Camania his own, as his troops swept by, and the country of the Oritians was brought back to you, Susa, when his ships had sailed from the ocean, from India to Persia, tell them, I say, that you deserted him, and left him to the mercy of barbarian men, whom you yourselves had conquered. Such news will indeed assure you praise upon earth, and reward in heaven. Out of my sight! As he ended, Alexander sprang from the rostrum, and hurried into the palace. All that day he neither ate nor washed, nor permitted any of his friends to see him. On the following day, too, he remained closely confined. On the third day, he sent for the Persian officers who were in highest favour, and divided among them the command of the various units of the army. Only those whom he he designated his kinsmen were now permitted to give him the customary kiss. On the Macedonians, the immediate effect of Alexander's speech was profound. They stood in silence in front of the rostrum. Nobody made a move to follow the king, except his closest attendants and the members of his personal guard. The rest, helpless to speak or act, yet unwilling to go away, remained rooted to the spot. But when they were told about the Persians and the Medes, how command was being given to Persian officers, foreign troops drafted into Macedonian units, a Persian corps of guards called by a Macedonian name, Persian infantry units, given the coveted title of companions, Persian silver shields and Persian mounted companions, including even a new royal squadron in process of formation. They could contain themselves no longer. Every man of them hurried to the palace. In sign of supplication, they flung their arms on the ground before the doors and stood there, calling and begging for admission. They offered to give up the ringleaders of the mutiny and those who had led the cry against the king, and swore they would not stir from the spot, day or night, unless Alexander took pity on them. Alexander, the moment he heard of this change of heart, hastened out to meet them. He was so touched by their grovelling repentance and their bitter lamentations that the tears came into his eyes. While they continued to beg for his pity, he stepped forward as if to speak, but was anticipated by one, Calanese, an officer of the companions, distinguished by both age and rank. My lord, he cried, what hurts us is that you have made Persians your kinsmen. Persians are called Alexander's kinsmen. Persians kiss you, but no Macedonian has yet had a taste of this honour. Every man of you, Alexander replied, I regard as my kinsman, and from now on that is what I shall call you. Thereupon Calanese came up to him and kissed him, and all the others who wished to do so kissed him too. Then they picked up their weapons and returned to their quarters, singing the song of victory at the top of their voices. To mark the restoration of harmony, Alexander offered sacrifice to the gods he was accustomed to honour, and gave a public banquet which he himself attended, sitting among the Macedonians, all of whom were present. Next, then, the Persians had their place, and next to the Persians distinguished foreigners of other nations. 
Alexander and his friends dipped their wine from the same bowl and poured the same libations, following the need of the Greek seers and the Magi. The chief objective of his prayers was that the Persians and Macedonians might rule together in harmony as an imperial power. It is said that 9,000 people attended the banquet. They unanimously drank the same toast and followed it by the piano victory. After this, all Macedonians, about 10,000 all told, who were too old for service or in any way unfit, got their discharge at their own request. They were given their pay, not only up to date, but also for the time they would take on the homeward journey. In addition to their pay, they each received a gratuity of one talent. Some of the men had children by Asian women, and it was Alexander's orders that these should be left behind to avoid the trouble among their families at home, which might be caused by the introduction of half-caste children. He promised to have them brought up on Macedonian lines, with particular attention to their military training, and added that when they grew up, he would himself bring them back to Macedonia, and hand them over to their fathers. It was a somewhat vague and unsatisfactory promise. He did, however, give the clearest proof of how warmly he felt for them, and of how much he would miss them when they had gone by his decision to entrust them on their journey to the leadership and protection of Craterus, the most loyal of his officers, and a man he loved as dearly as his own life. When he said goodbye to them, his eyes, and the eyes of every man among them, were wet with tears. While we must be wary of exaggeration, and that speeches in ancient texts are of dubious reliability, what can we learn from this episode? Alexander was becoming increasingly mentally unstable, sulking for days when things did not go his way, not behaviour you would expect from a king. We will see this develop more later on with the death of Hephaestion. We can also see just how important Alexander was to his troops. They really did love him. Whatever you may think of the man... He was certainly a charismatic figure. Craterus was to take his troops back to Macedonia, as I have just said, and he was to replace Antipater. He was to come back to Mesopotamia with a fresh draft of men. Remember, you can find us online at thehistoryofpodcast.blogspot.com. From there, you can find links to the Facebook page, the Twitter feed, the YouTube channel, the Tumblr page, the Google Plus page, and there will be maps to help your understanding so you can follow along visually. Thank you to Peter John Ross for the music, and thanks to you for listening. Join us next time, when we enter the downward spiral of Alexander's life, as the hour of his demise grows close at hand. <laughs>